Inescapably foreign. Welcome to Without Borders. I'm your host, Nolan Yuma. If this is your first time tuning into the show, know that this is a podcast for nomads, expats, uh, third culture kids, or anyone else that feels inescapably foreign. Today, I'm here with Dr. Stephen J. Hine. He's a scholar and a professor of social and cultural psychology at UBC. That's the University of British Columbia, where I went. His research has challenged key psychological assumptions and self-esteem, meaning, and the ways people understand genetic constructs. And if you've listened to the show before, or if you read any of my work at withoutborders.fyi, you'll know that the most quoted book is Cultural Psychology, which is Steve's book. Um, so I'm I'm sitting here with one of my academic and intellectual heroes right now, so... It's uh, 12 at night, that's uh, midnight for me here in Spain, but I am very excited to have Steve on the show. So, uh, Steve, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Um, pleasure to meet you, Nolan. I'm excited to be on your show. Thank you. Um, so, Steve, just to s- start it off, um, of course, I have a little bit more of an academic background with cultural psychology, thanks to your book and my professors at UBC. Uh, but how would you define culture? Um, so there's a lot of different ways that, that people do define culture. Um, to me, I, I like a definition that gets, I think, right to the most basic level. And I see culture is, uh, the information that we share with others, that, that we learn from others. So, um, we're always, um, we're a species that likes to share our experiences. Um, our, our brains, the reward centers of our brains light up. When uh, we talk about our own experiences, we find this um, uh, really engaging. And because of that, because we're always sharing our experiences with each other, we're always sharing information with each other. And this shared information comes to create a, a shared reality that we live in that that provides us norms to, to guide our behaviors. And and that's our culture, at least to me, that's the, the, the most basic definition of culture. Yeah. So... Keeping that definition in mind, um, I think of some people, when they think about culture, their mind immediately goes to museums or it goes to language, um, which kind of relates more to that definition. But how would you react when some people, let's say like in Canada, they go to Europe and then they come back and then they say, there's so much more culture there. Right. Yeah. Well, I think what they're referring to there it's it's still this kind of shared information that we have out there it's just that um in europe there's uh, a longer history of that shared information than the colonial culture that europeans brought to canada where, where i live so um the colonial culture is is only a few centuries old um i mean i'm at university of british columbia it recently celebrated its uh, 100th uh, anniversary and it's the first university in in the province so it's a pretty recent colonial culture clearly there's been people living here for thousands of years um, um before that but uh the the colonial canadian culture is is the one that kind of has spread across the the country in kind of a somewhat unifying way and that's so recent whereas in europe you know, you can see all of the artifacts of this this shared information that people have uh, been exchanging for for centuries. Um, so I have that sensation too when I go to Europe, just things that wow, you can just see um, uh, these these are ideas and ways of living that go back centuries 
And uh, especially in Western Canada, it's just so recent. Yeah, definitely. And I understand that feeling too when you're in Europe, but I always play the devil's advocate when someone says that. And then I bring up uh, the hundreds of indigenous languages that we have in Canada. And then if you take um, just the white man out of the equation, <laughs> then you start to realize how much culture and how much shared information there really is in, uh, in Canada as well. Uh, um, and just for the listeners right now, because of course I have a little bit of the background, but just so we're kind of here on the same page, um, one thing I think is important to bring up is the high hierarchical framework that you created with um, Ara Noren Zion. Can you kind of summarize it for the listeners? Because I think I think it's a very good starting point for people who want to think about culture in a more in-depth way. Sure. Um... Yes. So we created this hierarchy for thinking about uh, cultural universality, when we can say something is, is uh, universal to people all around the world or whether it's, it's specific to uh, certain cultures. And it's actually not that straightforward to distinguish between what is something that's culturally universal and what is something that's uh, that specific. So um, uh, there are some psychological processes that do look pretty uniform around the world to the um the best that that we can tell um uh so these are things um such as uh that you know familiarity leads to liking that repeated exposures to something um, makes us process that more easily and that makes us like it more have a positive feeling when, when we encounter that and that's something that doesn't differ much uh, between cultures at least from what we can tell and um, so that's something that, that we just we call that's our um, uh, our highest level of universality. We call that an accessibility universal. Um, then one step down, there's another level of universality, and uh, that's where that people do things for the same use psychological tools for the same function everywhere, but they use them to uh, differing degrees. Um, uh, so, uh, f for example, what would be a good example of this? Um, just the, the idea that um, perhaps that uh, um, people uh, will um, frown when they're angry. Okay, so um, that, that when people frown when they're angry, they, they do this to a degree everywhere, but they, um, the degree varies somewhat. The, the way that people express their emotions, there's a certain cultural accent on the way that they express their emotions. So, so we would call it that in general, it's quite similar, but it, it, it differs uh, a little bit. And so that's something that we call a, uh, a functional universal. And then the, the, the next level is when there's a psychological tool that's uh, in principle accessible to everyone around the world, but they use it towards different ends. And uh, an example of this, perhaps from my, my own research, uh, I've studied what motivates people to, to do their best, and I, I'm looking in uh, a Japanese and a, a North American context in, in Canada and the U.S., and, and we find that uh, North Americans uh, are motivated to do their best um, when they're getting positive feedback, when they're feeling getting positive information about, about their performance. The idea that I'm good, that motivates North Americans to, to work harder. And uh, in contrast, uh, we find the opposite tendency in, in Japan, that uh, Japanese people, we find our studies, are, are motivated to work harder when they find out that they're not good enough, when they're getting critical feedback, highlighting where there's room to improve. 
And so that this here, um, we're getting a, a pretty pronounced cultural difference, but it's still using the same underlying basic tools. Like we're still motivated to, to do our best. It's just being motivated by, by, diff toward, by different means. And uh, we call that an existential universal. And then the, uh, the last level of uh, universality is, we call it a non-universal. And that's something that is something that just is simply a, a psychological process that is just simply not evident in other cultures. Um, and, and this is um, uh, uh, meaning that it's a cultural invention. Certain psychological tools are cultural inventions. And um, a, a good example of this is mathematical reasoning, um, which I think is an interesting one because math is, you know, universal across the universe that, you know, the, the, the way that, um, uh, you know, that uh, basic physical properties of objects work in constant ways across the universe. But our ability to understand math is something that uh, uh, that is learned. And there are some cultures that don't have um, numeric concepts um, beyond uh, number two. So they have a number one, they have a number two, and then they have something more than number two. Um, and uh, so all that we know about math is stuff that uh, people have invented and shared with others and then that we ultimately learned in our schools. Um, and so that's something that if you haven't been exposed to that, you can't do math. You, you, the, uh, the idea of what is a fraction if you've never been exposed to math, is just something that you cannot compute. And so that's the, the lowest level of universality. We call that a non-universal. Yeah, so I, I love that example. I remember reading that in the book, but I, well, I've read the book three or four times now, so <laughs> I've got uh, quite a few of the details memorized. Um, and then another one just related to that, and I love bringing this up, is the Muller-Lyer illusion. Oh, yeah. Right? Because often people think that these illusions that we learn are true. You would think that it's a universal, but then it yeah. turns out not to be the case. Uh, now, before we give the answer, just uh, quickly tell the listeners what the Muller liar illusion is. Um, if you type it in on Google, you'll see it's the one with the two lines, and then you have um, two arrows either pointing inwards or outwards. And of course, those lines are actually the same. But the illusion is that they look different. And it turns out that people from foraging societies uh, don't see this illusion. Now, before Steve tells us the answer, just take a moment to think about it. All right. So, Steve, why is that? Why don't they see the illusion and why are we susceptible to it? Yeah, that's um, uh, I think it's a it's a fascinating example. Yeah. So, um our visual system develops very early in, in life, that we come in sort of our visual system is programmed to learn from information that it gets from the environment. And one of the kinds of information that we get growing up in an industrialized environment where we live in worlds that have been carpentered with right angles and corners, that we see um, these, these edges in these, like if you look into the corner of a room, you, you will actually see that it has edges. And if the, uh, if the corner is the furthest part of the scene from you, the edges are going to look something like this. I don't know if you can see that like this. Um, on the other hand, if the edge is something that's closer to you than the rest of the scene, then the, uh, the, the edges on the, the angle of the edge is going to look something like this. And so our brain uh, interprets that information. We learn to, to use it to infer relative distance. So uh, when we see this, we see something that, oh, that's something that's um, relatively closer to us than the rest of the scene. And then when we see this, we see something that is 
further away from us than the rest of the scene. And uh, if something's further away from us, but it's taking up the same amount of space, we think, oh, it must be larger than it really is because we know it's further away, yet it looks so large. And uh, you need to be exposed to uh, carpentered corners early in your life to be susceptible to this illusion. If you're not, uh, you never learn. Your visual system doesn't learn that those edges can be used to infer distance. Yeah, yeah, it's it's fascinating. It's something that I bring up often with people just to see if they can figure it out on their own <laughs> without the research. I have no idea if I would have been able to figure it out just by thinking about it. Um, but then, of course, I always uh, bring that up to segue into weird people. Uh, you and I are both weirdos, right? Mm, yes. <laughs> uh, Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic. If you've listened to the show before, you've definitely heard me bring that up. And Steve, you you and Ira came up with that together? Um, yes, with Arnold and with Joe Henrik. Um, okay. Uh, he used to be in in our department. The, the three of us um, wrote a paper where we sort of surveyed all of the cross-cultural evidence that we could find uh, it, for psychological phenomena that have been studied in many different cultures. And, and what we realized is the vast majority of this work is with one particular group, just as he called it, the weird people, Western, educated, industrialized, rich, democratic societies. And that is the, the vast majority of work in the, the behavioral sciences is focused on that topic, uh, focus on that sample. And um, moreover, uh, comparing the results of data from that sample compared with other samples, we realize that it's often an outlier. It's often an unusual way of, uh, of thinking, not a uh, species-typical way of thinking. So we've been studying, we behavioral sciences have been studying uh, a narrow sample that's actually somewhat unusual compared with the rest of the world, except we've been building theories that we think apply to the, the, the rest of the world because the researchers are largely looking at the same samples. And when we compare results from different labs, we say, oh yeah, I found that effect, you found that effect, we, we all found that effect, but not realizing that's because most of us are, are studying the same Western-educated, industrialized, rich democratic societies. Yeah, and that's not only in the field of psychology, right? That's just in academia. Yeah, in, in, in academia more generally, I think especially the, the, the social sciences. Um, and uh, that, I think, is an interesting phenomenon in itself, um, that why it is that, um, I mean, there, there are more psychologists per capita in, in the West than there is in, in the rest of the world, that at UBC, where I teach, uh, psychology is the biggest major on campus, um, and in many countries around the world, uh, psychology isn't even offered as a as a as a discipline as a, as a major topic of study. So that uh, I think that's kind of I think that's the, the beginning of the, the the weird problem, or at least uh, one contributor to it is that um, uh, people who are fascinated by uh, by how the mind works. Um, and it might also be perhaps due to um, economic situations and, and also, I think, just due to other aspects of our psychology. But anyways, people who are fascinated by this tend to, are, they're more common in, in the West. I think in the West, people find the, their own internal experiences quite captivating and they want to study it, whereas much of the rest of the world is, is concerned with other things. They're, they're tending more to, well, what do uh, the groups around me want me to do? Um, they're, they're, they're concerned with social norms, social pressures, and not so much of, well, how do I feel about it? Um, and uh, so anyways, yeah, you have this, this curious problem where 
most psychologists are also from weird countries and they tend to study convenient samples, the people around them. And so we end up having this discipline that's just been largely looking at uh, th this very narrow sample compared to the rest and of the world. Now, just so the listeners know just how big this, I would call it a problem, right? How big this yeah. problem is. Um, what were the numbers again? Is it 70% of studies are conducted in weird and then uh, I'm saying of them are from university students? Um, I think it's uh, almost 70% from uh, North, from the U.S. Actually, it's about 68% of the um, the samples in the, the top journals of psychology are from the U.S. and 96% from the uh, from the West, the West more generally. Um, and then within that, about 70% of uh, the, these Western samples have been university students. So uh, you, if you crunch all of the numbers, this means that the odds of an American undergrad showing up in a psychology study are, are about 4,000 times greater than the odds of a non-Western person in the rest of the world showing up in a psychology study. So it really is a, uh, a very distorted view that we have of the world because we've largely been looking at, yeah, this, this one group that's, that's not all that big, but uh, has um, somehow got to uh, define how we understand the psychology of the, the rest of the world. Yeah. So you just hinted towards why that, why that could be one financially um, and also just interests, right? What, what the people are concerned with. Um, but I think money must be a, a pretty big uh, indicator because reading your book and then also just looking at other research, I notice now that there is a lot more uh, psychology research and social science research in China and in Japan and well, I don't know about Korea, but I, I've definitely read quite a bit in Japan and China. And I assume it's because there's more money there. Is, am I correct in saying that? Or yeah, well, we're just concerned with different things. I, I would say that, yes, on average, wealthier societies um, are more likely to be uh, studying psychology. Um, I, I do think that, yeah, psychology has been growing a lot in East Asia recently, but Historically, it it hasn't been such a big topic of study. It's it's growing uh, in in its popularity there. Um, I think it's been less common there uh, historically, though. Yeah, just just because part of the 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 self concept, the, the 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 way that our mind is is organized to understand the individual's perspective um, is shaped by uh, cultural practices. And growing up in the West, the, the cultural practices are, are very much about how to be an independent, self-sufficient entity. And um, how do you take care of yourself? Um, how do you perceive the world? And um, I think growing up in that mindset, you become very sensitive to attending to your inner experiences. These inner experiences play, play a big role in uh, your understanding of who you are. Uh, we call this an independent self-concept. Um, and in much of the rest of the world, in, in, in non-Western cultures and, and in East Asia in particular, um, uh, there's uh, a sense of the, the self who the individual is, is um, it's tied up in people's ideas about relationships that they have with others, roles that they have in those relationships, and groups that they belong to. So it's much more of these social aspects uh, of the individual that those get wrapped up in the self. And that leads to a perspective, not inside, but outside to 
what is everyone else doing? Um, what do others expect of me? And uh, having that more external focus here, I think, um, is quite different from uh, um, the kinds of concerns that psychologists study. That's, um, and I think so our psychology, I think, has largely been built on these ideas that have grown out of the West where people have, uh, for s some time here have had this more of this individualistic, independent self-concept that uh, directs their attention inwards and makes them interested in these questions about um, psychology and why do I feel that way. Um, and I think those are just l considered less often in many other parts of the world. Definitely. And well, I think about it a lot, the individualistic and collectivistic um, duality. And now that I live in Spain, um, I'll, you think Spain, it is a Western country, but the longer I live here and the more I get to know the culture and the more I apply what I know from cultural psychology, I realize how collectivistic it actually is here. And I don't know if this has anything to do with it, but I remember in your book, um, you mentioned one of the reasons that societies might become more collectivistic or individualistic depends on whether they had uh, rice or wheat, because rice, um, to cultivate rice, you need to work as a team, um, and wheat, you can often do it by yourself, right, or yeah. with a small unit. And then I thought here in Spain, maybe it has something to do with paella rice. I don't know, though. <laughs> Um, I think it might have more to do with the, the Catholic history and yeah. things like that, but yeah, yeah, no, that's, um, I think there's many different parts of our environment that, that shape the cultural norms that emerge. And you uh, just alluded to a, a big one is just, uh, the, the key crops that, that we grow that, um, that for much of history, most people were involved in food production. It's, um, only relatively recently that um, we have have developed really since the industrial revolution that um, a, a larger proportion of people have been able to to leave basic food production and yeah uh, wheat farming is something that is largely done by by a single family that um, they, uh, they they wait for the rains um, I mean irrigation um, uh, is is used to a degree, but historically it wasn't used nearly to the degree that it is now. So people just waited for the the, the rains to fall, and then at the uh, end of the season they, they 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 harvested their crops. Whereas growing rice, it's uh, it's it's quite different. That rice is grown in paddies in in standing water, and one that means uh, you need to have a, a, a shared irrigation system because. Um, where when you when you flood your paddies has to be the same time that your neighbors flood their paddies, um, and so this uh, involves a lot of coordination with others and actually a hierarchical power where you you look up to the governing authorities for were um, involved in in deciding when this is happening, and then too that that race cultivation is far more labor intensive, so there's a lot of labor sharing between families, um, so that. Uh, that you can't harvest all the rice at the same time because you need support of others, your your neighbors really, to, to, to harvest rice at those times. So then um, it's uh, families, neighboring families coordinate such that they plant their rice at slightly different times so that it's harvested at slightly different times. And all of this involves a lot of coordination with your neighbors. They have to learn to get along with neighbors and, and learn to do things in sync with neighbors, to coordinate with them. 
and um, and so yeah, this has been argued to be a, a key reason why this more these more collectivistic traditions emerge because you can see them one between countries, but also even within countries. A lot of this research has been done within China because in China there's rice growing regions and there's wheat growing regions, and the rice growing regions you see more evidence of this collectivistic way of thinking um, than in the wheat growing regions. Um, and so yeah, that's uh, that's one key source of influence is. Um, is the the crops that 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 people raise so yeah, yeah. And, and bringing up the crops and um the plow and everything it even influences egalitarian views as well right yeah yeah so that's um uh that's been so some interesting uh uh research that's been uh, done by some e economists um such as nathan nunn um and what uh they were looking at was just this this idea of uh, why are uh, why do countries differ in terms of their norms towards gender equality, and they're really quite vast differences in in countries between whether men and women are, are seen as equal, having same rights and opportunities, or whether they're seen as quite distinct. And there's there's the female world, and there's a, there's a male world, and different uh, rights and opportunities. And um, so uh, one key argument. Um, has been made, and a lot of data has shown to back it up, is that places, once uh, farmers adopted a plow, that this actually had big changes in society. Before there was a plow, people used to do agriculture largely with a stick like a hoe, and you would sort of dig a hole and, and put, put seeds in there. And, and farming then was practiced by both men and women in the community. Um, and it was something uh, both men and women were, were involved. And then uh, the, the plow was an invention, and it was uh, it was really good for agriculture because it um, you could plant seeds far more effectively with the, with the plow. You can tear up the ground, and then uh, it's it's much more efficient than digging individual holes. But the problem with the plow is uh, one, it's kind of dangerous because you you need to do uh, tie the plow to some to some livestock like oxen um, to pull, and so it's kind of dangerous. So you don't want little kids around, and um, uh, around the world, uh, mothers do more uh, childcare of young infants than, uh, um, than 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 do men, and so you can't have kids around when you got a plow. And also, the plow using the plow involves a lot of upper body strength too, um, which um, around the world men have more upper upper body strength. So you end up once the plow comes in, all of a sudden farming becomes the man's job, and all of a sudden you have this big uh, sort of sexual division of labor here that, uh, well, the, the, the men are involved in, in the basis of food production, the, 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 which is the, the basis of the economy. And um, so what you can see is how long a, a region has been using the plow predicts how unequal are the gender norms today. And some yeah. places where the plow came later in Scandinavia, the plow came a lot later. Um, they um, so they had less time. They've had it for centuries, mind you, but it's been less time uh, than it has been in much of the rest of the world. And so there's been less time for this gender division of labor to um, to emerge. So, um, yeah, I find it really quite fascinating with culture that going back in her history, some early changes that might seem kind of small or, or kind of unrelated can later on have uh, persistent uh, effects that, that shape the whole trajectory that a culture is on. Yeah, yeah it's fascinating. Um, here now just to, to bring it back to the the East and or in the weird countries, one thing that keeps coming up on this show, especially 
uh, people who have lived in North America and have gone to schools in North America, um, mostly I'm talking about Canada, um, versus people who have gone to schools in Europe and in Asia. Now, both people on the show, people from Asia, people from Europe, when they go to a Canadian school, we're talking about high school here, they always mention how the teachers will never say anything bad about them. <laughs> and how much of a focus there is on self-esteem. And um, I was a little bit hyperbolic when I said this, but I said, um, if you travel around the world, no one gives a shit about your self-esteem. It's such a North American idea. But of course, that's a little bit hyperbolic and selfish. And then I go on to say self-esteem doesn't even exist in some other languages. But of course... It does in a way, right? Because it's just how we understand and how we define self-esteem. Um, so since that's come up on the show quite a bit where people say that, oh, in North America, teachers aren't willing to say anything bad because everyone's worried about the self-esteem. Um, and then in the rest of the world, they don't care about self-esteem. But that's not really true. So can can you expand on that a little bit, like the three phases sure. of self-esteem? And because I know this is you're in, yeah, it's one of your expertise, right? I've done yeah, I've done quite a bit of uh, uh, research on this, and it's really the 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 topic that I started today it was the first topic I I looked at in my career, and um, I, I got interested in this because right after I received my undergrad, um, I, I went to teach English for a couple of years in a tiny town in in rural Japan town called Obama of all things and um, I was I just had my I came fresh from university with my psychology degree and I thought I understood you know well, there are a lot of things in school about you know how people um, people work and what motivates them and I tried to apply that being a teacher and so one of the things that I would do is whenever I was teaching my Japanese students English uh, when they, whenever they would try something I would say you know good job and um I would always be co-teaching with a Japanese teacher and, and this one teacher particularly, he would often bring me aside and he would, he was bothered by me doing this. He goes, why did you tell that kid he did a good job? He did a bad job. And, um, and, and he goes, don't you want them to, uh, to learn their English? And I found this really confusing because of course that's what, that's what I'm trying to do too. And we just had very different strategies. He thought the way to do it was tell people, you know, you've done a bad job. And, um, and that would motivate them. And I, I thought the opposite. And this ultimately has sort of led to this research program um, that I have on, uh, yeah, w w what, uh, what are the different ways that people view, posit uh, view themselves positively uh, around the world? And uh, yeah, I think in the West, um, uh, there is this idea of, of, of self-esteem that uh, to view oneself positively, it's taking the individual's own perspective that 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 really matters. So having self-esteem is when you when the individual says, "I think I'm good," right, or "I believe I'm good," and it's really from the 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 individual's perspective. And and there's been a lot of research showing that having the sense of self-esteem does predict a lot of positive outcomes in in the West. That people who have higher self-esteem on average do achieve more in school. Um, uh, they 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 tend to fare better in in a number of ways. That this confidence is key. But it's an important um, note to highlight there is that you said in the West, right? Yes. Yes. And uh, so this is something that's been, I think, especially cultivated in cultures where there is more of this independent yourself, where with the idea is you're supposed to be self-sufficient. 
you're supposed to be the director of, of, of your own life. Um, and self-esteem, I, I mean, in, in the West too, it's, it's actually a fairly recent topic of study. It, it's really caught on in the 1960s uh, is when people started uh, to study it. And if you look back at that early research from the 1960s to now, uh, you realize that, as, as some people like Gene Twenge, uh, um, a social psychologist, has identified, is that self-esteem has been going up in the West. Um, and uh, it's gone up quite a bit, uh, um, almost 20% since the 1960s, as people's self-esteem. It's gotten so high now that the most common answer on a self-esteem sc uh, scale is the highest possible scale. That's the most common answer in, among uh, American participants. They, they couldn't answer the questions any more positively than, than they already do. And uh, so there's been this growing movement. People are viewing themselves in the West more and more positively. And I think part of the reason for that is the culture around them has also been changing such that it's encouraging people to have more positive views of themselves. One way we can see that is um, with how grading has changed. Um, that uh, there's a nice analysis of this um, done by some psychologists who are looking at what were the most common grades back in the 1940s in the U.S. And, and the most common grade uh, then was a C. Uh, C was the most common grade and an A was reserved for the, the rare student who um, really stood out. So only about, I think it's like, about 15% of the students would get an A in the, in the 1940s. Most people would get a, get a C. And that has changed um, so that it's, um, it's something like, it, now an A is the most common grade at American universities. Uh, something like 40-something percent uh, of students are, are getting an A in, in, in classes. And, and this changes because um, the universities have, or individual instructors, well, really I think the whole culture has, has changed such that, um, that the, desired, uh, the desired way of evaluating students is to come up with an evaluation where people tend are doing positively. So that teachers, instructors here, they're making the exams and, and you can make an easy exam or you can make a hard exam. And uh, the exams really haven't gotten easier over time such that they, the idea is that they want most people to come out with an A out of the course and to and, and to think they're doing well. Whereas before, I think it was more that uh, it was more kind of like um, the Japanese instructors that I was telling you about. The idea that no, you you, you want to provide some critical feedback to people so they, that they know where they're they're lacking. They they know where to, to focus their, their effort. So there's been this change uh, over time, and and so you see they're kind of going in parallel. That uh, average grades have been going up and average self-esteem has also been going up uh, now you by that West. you personally do you do you think this is a good trend do you think this is a positive trend or do you think it has some negative negative yeah. effects? i i'm um i tend to view uh self-esteem um more as a as well i i'm kind of agnostic if it's good or if it's bad in the sense that um i think uh people end up getting a a self-view that fits with their culture. So if the culture is changing in this way, that the idea is that we're supposed to be focusing on what's good about ourselves, then it is more functional to have high self-esteem in that culture. If the culture, though, is uh, changing or, or if it has uh, for some time been a culture which emphasizes the interdependence of the individual and so that a person is supposed to fit in with others, and is supposed to take on the roles required by others, 
um, then um, I don't think self-esteem is, is so functional there. And there, in fact, it can be more adaptive to be focusing on uh, where you might be um, uh, have some shortcomings where you might be uh, likely to jeopardize getting a positive view from others. And so, yeah, I guess what I haven't said is I think, yeah, self-esteem is the way of viewing the self positively that matters in the West. And I think, uh, at least in East Asia, the corresponding view, I would I would use the term face for. Uh, the saving of face. Saving face, yes, exactly. And, and face is something that's it, it that shares some commonalities with self-esteem and, and some key differences too. So like self-esteem, it's about having a positive view of yourself. But the key, some key differences are face is based on what others think of you. So that's your face is ultimately in the hands of others. Um, and that really changes things from a psychological level because uh, when the concern is about building your own self-esteem, what matters is your own perspective that if I think I'm doing well, then I'll have high self-esteem and it's kind of up to me to interpret things in a way where I end up looking good. And that's a way of building um, self-esteem. But when it's face and it's, I need others to view me positively. Well, that changes the dynamics a lot because now it's like, how can I present myself in a way that I think others will, will like? And one key way of doing that is making sure that you don't have any shortcomings that is going to cause others to think negatively of you and might cause you to lose face, which is um, very problematic in East Asian society. Yeah. And I think there are pros and cons with that. So I, I work as a teacher as well, and I've taught hundreds of students uh, from China, especially. I've taught students from around South America and Canada. And I'll just be honest, on average, it is a pleasure to teach Asian students compared to Western students. They, they work harder. Um, when you do give them critical feedback, they take it and they don't whine about it. And then if you give them positive reinforcement, they love it because it's, it's something that they don't get all the time, right? So when you do give them something positive, it really means something to them. And I find nowadays in North America, you tell a student something good. And well, of course, they, they hear nothing but good things about themselves. So it kind of just gets washed away. But then on the flip side, how you just described saving face, it is so much easier to get a Western child um, or, and a North American child to express their opinion about something. If I say create a context sentence or explain your opinion here, and they'll just, they'll just go off. Whereas many Asian children that I teach um, you really got to force it out of them to get the opinions out. Yeah. And I, uh, I think that difference um, also stems just even from some ideas of uh, different ideas of what is knowledge, what, is the, uh, w what are the goals of, of, of uh, education. And I think um, sort of coming from a more of a Confucian perspective, the, the idea is that um, knowledge is something that experts have. And so you're learning from the the experts, and so you should listen to what they they say and and try to try to learn what what they're telling you. And I think uh, a lot of ideas about Western knowledge perhaps stem back from some classical Greek ideas, uh, some ideas, Socrates, that knowledge is something inside of you that that you have to come and 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 to um, you you understand things by um, uh, by questioning others until they 
uh, are able to figure things out for themselves. And there's this much more of this emphasis on, on the individual learning things and that the individual can create some of these kinds of knowledge. And so I think that's, uh, that self is, is another key difference uh, between societies is, you know, you know, what is the purpose of education? Is it to teach you to how to um, understand things for yourself or is it to how to understand things the way that you're, you, the, the experts, um, um, that, that knowledge is something that resides within experts versus knowledge is something that resides within all of us. Yeah, yeah. Now, just tying into this when we're thinking about education and we're thinking about what are the best ways to do this and what, what's going to be best for humanity, I often think about morality when it comes to culture, right? Um, can we morally accuse a cultural tradition? Yeah. Um, is it possible? And of course, uh, at the beginning of your book, you have and a wonderful example I love to bring up. And that's with the, the, Zam, the, the Zambia? Zambia? Zambian. The Zambian people. Zambian. The, the Z- Zambian people, right? Oh, with, Where, with an Yes, yeah, with an S, where the boys are forced, well, not forced, I guess, or just it's part of the culture there to perform fellatio in order to obtain masculinity, right? And um, you kind of bring this up just to talk about how we think about um, a sexual orientation, right? Because they go from from um, a gay sexual orientation to eventually being allowed to be to be straight and to have a wife. And um, to me, I, I love the idea of how um, sexuality can be fluid and how it's not just straight or gay, right? And I think that's an interesting side of it. But on the other side, maybe it's my Western influence, but I stand by saying that it is wrong for a culture to do that, right? And how can I accuse that culture? Is, am, is there a way that we can universally, universally agree that that is wrong? Yeah. Well, that's a, you, you get right to a very thorny issue underlying this. So yeah, you, you're referring to the, the Sambia there, um, uh, a tribal society in um, the, the high hills of New Guinea. And um and this this practice seems to be centuries old. It's shared by many other um, small scale societies in uh, in New Guinea, and it's yeah, and it's and something yeah, it's just shocking by uh, Western modern norms that um, this is something that young boys are 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 are, are doing. Um, and I think to to me, uh, what what I try to do. And what I something I am emphasize to my class whenever we do talk about morality uh, across cultures is there's a tricky with moralities because we are socialized within a, a, a set of moral values to think of this is right and, and and this is wrong. So it's very difficult to conceive that other cultures could do things differently because if it's differently from what we think of as right, we reflexively assume that 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 it's that it's wrong. But even things in our culture, like um, just to bring bring an example from North America, I think uh, child beauty pageants are morally wrong, right? Yeah. So even though I'm I'm raised in that culture, I can still understand that yeah. there are things that are morally wrong with that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And um, and I I mean, th- there's lots of uh, other cultural practices and practices here within Canada that that I also agree are are, are wrong, and I don't think it's 
it's problematic to to have views of other cultures like this. I think that's just just natural because um, said we we do learn a, a, a set of uh, moral values and that guides our life and and we judge people on whether they they stick to it and and you do find sometimes that cultures can have practices that uh, go strongly against that. I think to understand the culture, to, to understand that practice, it's it's useful to try to uh, set aside the the judgmental side and, and to to look at it in a way of well, how is this this practice functional in that society? Why did it emerge? Um, and um, and I think that's useful for coming to under understand why why people do things. Um, and I, I would argue, I don't, I don't think overall that it's reasonable to say that some cultures are more moral on average than others. I, I think they, they're adopting, you know, sets of practices that, that, that fit with, with what the cultural norms around them uh, require. Uh, but yeah, it's a remarkable diversity of around the world of the kinds of things that, that, that people do. And, um, and many of the things that, that people do are far outside of uh, what the norms are within Canada of uh, what is appropriate behavior. Well, I, one thing you say right there that I think is really interesting is the fact, is it functional, right? Would it be fair to say that one good way to think about morality in a universal way is if that practice is no longer functional and no longer progressing the culture, can we say that it's wrong in in those terms then? Yeah, that's that's interesting. I think at heart this is a very thorny debate because uh, functional for for whom? And I agree that there's lots of things that traditions that continue um, and uh, often would be seen as problematic now. Some of the the traditions that continue that that maybe used to make sense in the past. Um, I think, uh, a, for example, a gender division of labor used to make sense in the past when society was was structured around that and um and society the, the norms have changed and i don't think that same gender division of labor makes sense anymore even though people with more traditional views will think well this is the way it's always been and it should continue to be that way um and and so yeah you always are going to have within any society that that some people are going to be embracing traditions more and some people are going to be looking forward more to to you know the new world that 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 we're living in and and people differ in in that regard and i think there's could be value both in trying to you know respecting traditions and in in looking to come up with with new norms for the, the new changing cultures because the cultures are always changing they are always fluid we have you know, new inventions coming by that we now live in a world with with smartphones. As of this year, it seems like we live in a world with artificial intelligence too, and um, and that's going to change the kinds of norms that we develop in a society. Of what is the effective way to to live? Our traditions, uh, you know, are what got us here, and some of those traditions maybe are going to provide provide a good foundation for us going forward. And other of our traditions. Uh, are ones that we that are now causing harm, but I think it's there's always going to be a lot of debate within a society of of you know what what is more harmful uh, and what is more value, and I think um, yes, this this is always I think going to be a perennial topic of debate between those endorsing more traditional views in society and those endorsing more progressive views, and I think every society has that division of opinions um, and is. Yeah. And it's contested, and 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 it's and it, 
But I think it's hard to take an objective point of view and say, well, who is right and who is wrong? I think that's hard to because we're all caught up in our own cultural networks of ideas here that none of us is, is has that objective uh, perspective. And so yeah, I think uh, morality is often confounded with this, these subjective perspectives based on the uh, the, the various cultural um well, the subcultures that, that, that we all live in, because we all do live in different collections of subcultures that um, mm. it's not, I'm not just Canadian. I'm, you know, I'm, well, one, I live in, in, in Vancouver, but I belong to various different social networks and those have all shaped the way that I think. And, uh, and that's the same for, for everyone. And all of those influences here uh, have nudged us in the, into the person that we are now. And, um, and including our views on on very contentious moral issues. Definitely. Now, Steve, I know you need to go soon, um, but to wrap up, I I want to bring up your latest book, um, also in relation to what you just mentioned about how cultures are changing and uh, you brought up AI, um, of course, the internet. So in your latest book, I haven't read it yet, but DNA is not destiny. Right. Um, I read that it's a uh, persuasive warning against unreflecting acceptance of sound bites, tweets, and headlines that simplify or distort reality. Uh, can you just give us a little bit of insight into this and what what that means? Sure. So um, this book is uh, really what I'm exploring, and is how people make sense of genes and genetic causation. And uh, in it, I refer to there's a, a psychological bias, and it's one of these ones that is more universal than others. Uh, we call it um, uh, essentialism, psychological essentialism. And that's where you understand the, the, the world um, as the natural world as coming from some hidden, uh, invisible forces that are deep down inside something. So if you want to understand, you know, why is a dog like a dog? You think, well, it's born like a dog. That's all, all of those potentials are in it um, uh, before it was born. So it's not that it learns how to become a dog. It was born a dog. And, and in, in many ways, the, the, these assumptions can, uh, can, can be quite realistic. But I think um, th there's often many ways, though, too, that they can be quite, uh, I think, grossly mistaken. And I think our this psychological bias that we have towards imagining that things are the way they are because of these hidden, unchanging uh, forces inside, those map very nicely to um, the the lay understanding of, of genetics. That is that uh, if you have a gene, then you, you're going to develop whatever traits are associated with that gene in this direct one-to-one -one deterministic way. Um, and so you get some interesting sort of psychological reactions that, that people will learn that uh, depression, for instance, is something that uh, is influenced by genes. And researchers have even labeled some things as like depression genes. And when people hear about that, that makes them think about depression differently. Oh, it's, it's something that uh, it's, you know, it's, it's not due to any fault on your own. That's just the way a person is born. Um, but it also, on the other hand, um, makes people uh, a little more pessimistic about a prognosis as well. If I'm depressed, exactly. And that if I'm depressed and depression is genetic, that means I have depression genes. I'm always going to have depression genes. Um, and that would, you know, the future doesn't look so bright. In actuality, 
uh, first of all, genes do influence every aspect of, of our psychology, of our nature. There is, they, they um, you know, um, that is, genes are one big influence for how we are and how all species are. But they don't operate in this direct one-to-one -one way, with the rare exception of some some diseases, rare diseases, something like Huntington's disease is one where it really is this one-to-one -one mapping. Um, the vast majority of other cases, no, it's you have some genetic potentials which are shaped by people's experiences that ultimately lead to um, outcomes. But what we found in our research is when you just tell people that genes are involved, they end up thinking differently about something. So, for example, one of our studies, we had um, people read in, uh, what they believed was um, a newspaper article describing some new research. But different groups of people read different articles. And one of those articles said that scientists have discovered the existence of math genes um, on the Y chromosome. And it's because of these genes that this explains why, on average, uh, men outperform women on, on math tests. We had another group. Yeah, we had another group read a different essay, and it said that uh, scientists have identified that um, teachers teach math differently to boys and to girls. And it's because of this that there's men tend to outperform women math tests. And then we had another group that read, actually, there's no differences in how men and women do on math tests. Um, and this is a uh, has been result. It's a uh, um, an inaccurate stereotype. Actually, there's a lot of debate just on how accurate or inaccurate the stereotype is. And the field has not reached a consensus on this. Uh, but anyways, what we f find then, and then we give people a math test. And uh, what we found is uh, actually all our participants were women. And uh, the women do worse on the math test when they're told about math genes that men have. Um, in contrast, when we're told about, well, the reason that uh, there's sex differences in math performance is because of the way they've been socialized. That doesn't influence them. They did just as well on the, the math test as the other group where we said that there are no differences, sex differences in math. And so the idea is if there causes something inside you, people think there's nothing I can do. It's, um, uh, it's, they have a very fatalistic take that that's just uh, the way I'm going to be. Um, in contrast, if you think of something outside of you, it's coming from social norms, people have the idea that they can resist that somehow. That's not inside me. I, 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 I can resist that. And I think the mistake is thinking because your genes are inside you, that means that anything that genes influence is going to become determined and it's and have a fatalistic reaction to it. And it doesn't work that way. That our genes are always uh, reacting to experiences, and that uh, our um, and that our experiences are are a big influence on how we uh, think about things. And um, so, anyways, that's what th that book is trying to point out is just the. Um, uh, really the, um, how our psychological biases have these problematic reactions when we consider this new field of, 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 of well, genetics is shaping sort of so many aspects of our life. And now people can get information about their genes through companies like 23andMe. And my book is really about, that book is about how people are really grossly misunderstanding this and sometimes in some very harmful ways. And it's trying to push people to have a, a, a more, um, positive understanding, more accurate understanding of the way that genes influence who we are. Very important book for this time. Um, now, Steve, I promised that we'd keep this under an hour because uh, I could talk to you for, <laughs> for a much longer time. As I said, your your book is one of my favorite books and um, that, I've, that I've read, and it's uh, really changed the way I think, and it's 
uh, lived with me for the past, I guess, seven, when did I first read the book? I guess six years ago or seven years ago. Um, so it's been an honor to have you on the show. Um, everyone listening right now, if you want to support the show, please go to withoutborders.fyi. Uh, you'll find a bunch of my articles there. And in my articles, you'll find many links to Steve's work. <laughs> uh, so if you want to purchase any of his books, you can find it on my website and you'll find the links there. Or, of course, you can uh, look up the books yourself on Google. Uh, Steve, any final words before we end the show? Well, I really appreciate the kind words you um, uh, uh, you just said about my book. But I do hope, yeah, that, that people realize uh, that culture is something that, that you have, that I think many people notice culture because they say, oh, other people from other parts of the world, they have these interesting cultures. And it can feel that are, that we don't really have uh, much of a, a culture. It's just because it's invisible. It's what everyone around us is 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 doing. Um, and uh, it's it's kind of like you're not aware of what accent you speak with, but of course you have an accent. It's just something you don't uh, notice it, but other people notice the accent that you have. And so it's just coming this this recognition that the way you are is because of the particular set of cultural values that has socialized you. And um, and so I think it's it's a good exercise to try to reflect upon what are these different cultural sources that have led you to becoming the person who you are definitely thank you steve all right and listeners thanks for tuning in and uh, i hope you tune into the next episode have a good one great thanks much for having me